The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome one and all to Night Fright. Jump in that comfy chair, kick your feet back, get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of your choice. Get ready for an exceptional reviewing show tonight. Donald Jeffries is here to discuss his new book, Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics. In 1887, British MP John Dalberg Acton wrote in a letter to Bishop Mandel Crichton, and you guys are gonna know this specific quotation. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Liberty is not the power of doing what we like, but the right of being able to do what we ought. According to 2011 statistics from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, America ranks 28th in life expectancy worldwide behind countries like Chile and Greece and Canada, by the way, for our Canadian listeners, is 6th. All this despite the fact, and you're going to be shocked at this one too, Americans pay more taxes for health care than any other country. The United States also ranks 41st in infant mortality. The United States does, however, rank in categories such as obesity, childhood poverty, and is among industrial countries and it is listed as the seventh highest cancer rate in the world. America also has more people in prison than the leading 35 European countries combined. The United States has twice as many citizens in prison as China. Now we know China is the world's foremost totalitarian regime. Even though, folks, China has four times the number of people. So, a question is begged to be asked. Who is responsible for the incredible mess that present-day generation of Americans finds themselves in? In his book, Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics, Donald Jeffries hopes to show exactly 
how this has happened. Through a series of deadly, inexplicable decisions by our elected leaders and corporate executives that have paved the way for the crisis we must deal with now. We must heed the words of Thomas Jefferson. Single acts of tyranny may be ascribed to the accidental opinion of a single day, but a series of oppressions begun at a distinguished period and pursued unalterably through every change of administrations too plainly proves a deliberate, systematic plan of reducing us all to slavery. As a teenager, which was probably last year, looking at Don, Donald Jeffries was a volunteer for Mark Lane's Citizens Committee of Inquiry. And everybody knows we all have fond memories of Mark being on the show, and he was a very, very good friend of mine who wrote the uh, intro for my own book. Just a terrific, terrific guy. Rest in peace, Mark. He has been an astute JFK researcher since then and has a new book out aptly titled Hidden History, which we're going to discuss tonight. But first, let me welcome Don to the show. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for this book and joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Brent, and thanks for all the kind words. You're very welcome, my friend. What do you say we jump in right away? Your book starts out with the Kennedy assassination, and I can't think of a better place where everything started to go to hell than November 22nd, 1963, the JFK assassination. Now, we know what took place that day, but what was leading up to it, Don? What was he challenging the status quo that he had gotten rid of? Well, John F. Kennedy really challenged the status quo on many, many fronts. I think the most important uh, aspect of that was National Security Action Memorandum 263 which Oliver Stone obviously mentioned quite a bit in the movie JFK, which paved the way for American withdrawal from Vietnam. First thousand troops were scheduled to be out by the end of 1963, and he wanted all of them out by 1965. Uh, what's important for people to remember is National Security Action Memorandums 273 was actually the first draft it was written before the assassination by McGeorge Bundy. If you want to look for a conspirator, there I think they're the likely conspirator. Because see, no one who had any idea that JFK would be alive after November 22nd would have written something like that because Kennedy would have never signed it. It absolutely contradicted the recent uh, National Security Action Memorandum 263 and actually paved the way for the escalation in Vietnam and everything else that happened in the 60s. So I think that's the most important thing that he was doing. He was also the only president really to uh, battle with the CIA to the extent he did. Uh, he was actually, I believe, talking behind closed doors about, about abolishing it. He basically gave uh, Attorney General Bobby Kennedy uh, oversight of it, uh, the CIA, the Pentagon, the mafia, so big oil, uh, big corporations, so many people, not to mention Southern segregationists and so forth, who I really don't think had the power to pull it off, but Kennedy had enemies everywhere. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and so he, there were so many people that Kennedy was doing things that people, and you know, lots of people believe that he knew the true nature of the of Federal Reserve. Through his father, Joseph P. Kennedy, was a banker and certainly knew how the bankers worked if anyone did, and I believe he had taught his son well, and I believe he was looking into that as well. So there were lots of reasons for the, power be, the powers that be to, uh, to get rid of Kennedy. He also was the first president ever who you know, refused to go to war over and over again whether it was the Bay of Pigs, where he pulled air support and you know, took, you know, took the blame for it, obviously the Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, the big one obviously was Vietnam, where he wasn't going to play along there. So, uh, and his American University speech, you know, a few months before his death, the peace, you know, and 
not no Pax Americana on the world and, and calling your enemies in Russia human beings and they breathe the same air we do. I've never heard a speech like that by a major American politician before or since. We don't have anybody doing that today. So he uh, he was a huge thorn in the side of the establishment. Can we just jump back to McGeorge Bundy? What position did he hold in the government? And did he ever explain his reason for writing that memorandum before Kennedy's assassination? Well, he was the national security advisor. I believe he was pretty much like a Henry Kissinger would be later, a later day for Nixon and uh, Ford. But I, I don't think he ever had to explain it because he died relatively young, and I don't believe anybody that would have asked him that question, certainly no mainstream journalist would have ever held his feet to the fire. But by the time people like Oliver Stone started really stressing that, that uh, aspect, the early critics didn't really talk about that as much. So really, I think he was gone by then. I forget when he died, but... I don't know, and if, if if he had been asked, I don't expect he'd give an honest answer. I don't think he would have said, you caught me, you know. I, mm -hmm. But it's just that it's a very suspicious thing, and a true investigation, which was, we know, as you know, we never had, a real investigation certainly would have uh, would have grilled him over that. You know, um, Ted Sorensen, JFK speechwriter, was a friend of mine, and he had said that no generation could survive JFK's assassination right after that, Dr. King's, and then Bobby's only a couple of months after that. He said it was like cutting off the intellectualism of a country. The soul of the country was ripped out. Do you think we've ever re recovered from that, or do you think we've just gone downhill since um, June 6th, 1968, Bobby Kennedy's assassination. Yeah, I, th I think that uh, I don't. I don't think we ever recovered from it. Obviously, and I and I'm actually writing hidden history too now, which is pre 1963. So clearly, you know, conspiracies have existed since antiquity, and certainly long before 1963. But for people in my generation, I'm a baby boomer. I was I was seven when uh, JFK was killed, and so it my memories pretty much begin from the nonstop funeral coverage, the shooting of Oswald. Uh, my family members, we were Catholic, so there was lots of speculation, and you know they all hated Johnson, so they instantly suspected him. So I was, you know, saturated in that as a very young age, and my memories really stem from that time. It was, it was the first a seminal event in my life, and certainly people that were older than me, uh, the people that uh, had gone in the Peace Corps, the teenagers and the youngsters who were inspired by JFK's idealism and his call to duty, it really had a huge impact on them. And the 1960s just were not the same because of that assassination, and certainly when King was assassinated, then especially when RFK was assassinated, like I tell people, the RFK assassination would not have happened if the JFK assassination hadn't. They were clearly tied together, and I believe the Martin Luther King assassination was as well. But uh, these were huge events. They made the decade, and uh, as, as Ted Sorensen, who I greatly admire, I mean, he's probably the greatest liberal rhetoric or writer of all time. I mean, just he was, his phraseology was incredible. But, uh, you know, so I, I really envy you that, that he was your friend. But, um, yeah, that's I chose to start with the JFK assassination for a reason, because I think we really started going downhill and we're picking up steam all the way since then. And, you know, now we're just, you know, we're like that movie Speed, you know, where we can't stop the bus. You know, we're, we're on breakneck speed at this point. We're just, you know. On the bus. <laughs> Yeah, who knows if it can be stopped, you know. Now, everybody points a finger at Johnson as being responsible for the assassination of JFK. I don't fall into that camp, and I'll, I'll explain very quickly why, but that doesn't mean there aren't legitimate concerns, folks. I just happen not to. My reasons are is because he pushed forward all JFK's policies after. Plus, on top of that, he was in the motorcade itself, 
and I don't know if anybody uh, would be putting themselves in harm's way if somebody, just a couple of cars in front of them, was to be assassinated. Don, do you feel that the machinations that started all the military-industrial complex, if you will, and the CIA roguesness started under Johnson, or do you think we can trace that back further to perhaps Eisenhower? Oh, I think we can try to trace it, you know, way back. <laughs> and I do that in history, too. But I think Kennedy was an aberration. Although Eisenhower, you know, Eisenhower looks pretty good in retrospect now, considering what came after that. You know, this, I mean, really, he looks pretty great in retrospect. But again, I think each president seems to be, you know, uh, subsequently worse than the next. And But I, I don't think it's really... I look at these guys as figureheads, basically, and I think, like you mentioned Johnson, I think Johnson's behavior showed that he had, I believe he had prior knowledge, I believe he was happy because he wanted to be president really badly, so I think he was happy to it, and he didn't really like Kennedy, but I don't think he had the power to do it on his own, I don't think, you know, if individual politicians pulled these things off, I, we would see it unravel much more, but th these are, is, you know, and I, I really think uh, Oliver Stone probably got it right when he had Donald Sutherland as Mr. X, who was based on Fletcher Prouty, who was kind of telling him there's something in the wind, people get, and you know, he had a bunch of enemies that coalesced together. I think that's probably a pretty good portrayal of how it happened that, uh, you know, but the, what we get with the Kennedy assassination or all the other things since then that I, I cover in my book, is that it's, I look at it as a, it's a way of that the elite do business. This is standard operating procedure for them. It's all one big conspiracy. It's just organized corruption. And they, they don't know any other way to do business. They have, they, you know, their entire careers have been based on dishonesty. And someone comes along like a JFK who was a rich kid, insulated in his world. I mean, he, he admitted that the only thing he knew about the Great Depression was what he read in the history books. So he had not, you know, he you know, went to Europe as soon as he graduated from uh, college and that kind of stuff. He, you know, toured, wrote, to, wrote or co-wrote uh, Profiles in Courage and so forth and, and had a, a career set for or because of his uh, great wealth. He came into office, I think, uh, kind of very naive and he was hit right away with the Bay of Pigs. And I think that changed him dramatically when he saw, well, I really can't trust these guys. Yeah. And it's, uh, his father was basically, I don't think his father had the stroke by then, so his father was probably advising him as well and he got to the point where he really didn't trust many people other than Bobby and so I think he he actually tried to do something and we we see what happens when one of these guys tries to go rogue and I think you probably saw that to a lesser degree later with Nixon I believe that's why Watergate why the why the press acted if you'll notice about my book one of them I don't cover too much is Watergate other than the you know, mysterious deaths related to it because I think it really was a second-rate burglary I don't think there was much to it, especially considering all these other scandals that are glossed over. But, you know, where are the Woodward and Bernstein normally, you know, before and after? They don't exist. The Washington Post under Ben Bradley has covered up so many stories, including the Kennedy assassination, and Bradley was supposedly JFK's great friend. So uh, I think, you know, usually these guys are figureheads, and if they get too powerful and they're trying to actually do some good with it, uh, unfortunately, they end up uh, like JFK did in Dallas. Don, do you feel that the media today and then uh, are under some kind of repression, that it truly is not a free media, and that the only outlet to get conspiracy theories about Kennedy's assassination and all others are through outlets like mine, Coast to Coast, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I think they're definitely that these kind of outlets like your show, are, that's the only way really to get real news now. And that's because uh, I, I don't think mainstream journalists have to be told to cover up. I think they're just, 
they learn this stuff at journalism school. They know instantly to stay away from conspiracy theories. Harold Weisberg told me, though, I, I met him once, had a memorable evening with him. Now and, I'm jealous. Oh, God. Well, he was my hero. And he told me, you know, it's they didn't have to be told to cover it up. And that was even sadder than if they had been. Mm. And that's what he told me. And, and I, I kind of tend to believe that because they just... If you watch C-SPAN or these kind of shows that have journalists on, whether they're left or right, you know, Fox News, MSNBC, whatever, one thing they all just blanch at, the instant mention of anything, the conspiracy theory. They love to say, oh, oh I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy, none of them buy conspiracy theories. So according to them, you know, they have great trust in our officials. I don't know where they get the idea that they've done anything to be trusted, but for the, you know, the public out there has a, a a uh, rate of less than 10% as far as uh, trusting Congress. Although somehow they re-elect 96% of them each election, so the dichotomy has to be explained still. <laughs> but uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we can get anything from the, from the mainstream media. There are a few good people, David Talbot, who has a book out now, The Devil's Chessboard. He's, he's a rare guy, but there aren't too many people like that, and they'll only go so far. And typical, like David Talbot is, is just kind of an honest liberal. And, uh, you know, someone like me, I, I'm a populist, but I, you can tell by the people that have endorsed my book, I can go far left, far right, and I think they meet on the extremes. And uh, it's because the sense that uh, we're being lied to, there's massive corruption, and, uh, and I think that's why you see the success of a Donald Trump and uh, also Bernie Sanders. They both tapped into, I think, that populism out there, different aspects of it. People are tired of the same old stuff. and. We'll see what happens, but uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't hold out a lot of hope. Uh, other than you know, the, the internet is a great, great thing, and if as long as we can keep it free, because I, you know, I've been on many, many interviews, and they're all shows like this that are, that are, that are preaching. Uh, you know, they're allowing a platform to alternative uh, news and alternative viewpoints. That doesn't happen in television anywhere. You're not going to get it on Fox News, MSNBC, anywhere. So these are it's really, really important to keep the Internet free because that's where people are learning, and they're getting bigger audiences now than the dinosaur media is. Yeah, I agree with you completely, and the, the students are turning in en masse. So it's important that we give them the correct information or information as a tool that they can make their own decisions by. Now, I'm going to say Nixon got hung out to dry with Watergate. I don't think he was a great president in any sense. I think he was uh, probably uh, looking for the best thing to happen in his career for himself. But I got a funny feeling, instead of removing Nixon as a president by shooting him, they drummed up this whole Watergate thing. But I, I think the way it exploded into the press, I think it hit the nail on the head. It was a second-rate burglary, and it should have just been overlooked as far as I'm concerned. So we have to look, what was Nixon doing at the time that he was threatening the status quo while he was making inroads to China? He was trying to end the war again. So perhaps, do you think many of those issues played part and parcel into his downfall? Well, I, I'm not sure what Nixon was doing, but I think, I believe uh, very much I agree with Len Kolodny in Silent Coup. I think that's kind of what happened. I think it was... Uh, Two weeks, folks, he's on. <laughs> okay, there you go. I'm doing a promotion for him then. Uh, no, he's great. But, uh, yeah, I think it, it's... I'm no fan of Nixon either. Like, I mean, Nixon was a dirty word in my house. You know, we were Democrats, and, you know, my dad hated Nixon, certainly, especially, you know, the race with Nixon and so forth. And he was he just kind of a smarmy politician, but he wasn't a people person guy. I think he did, didn't have good social skills. I don't know how he became a successful politician, but he always looked unnatural. 
I think I don't think that he was really a greatly an honest guy or anything, and he probably was as corrupt as anyone else. But he did something. I don't know what he what he did, but the way the way everything uh, operated, I just compared it to what happened in the Kennedy assassination. As Harold Weisberg used to say, all of our great institutions completely failed with the assassination of Kennedy. Whether it was uh, you know the FBI. The, uh, the Secret Service, and uh, obviously our mainstream media. Mm. And you can say the same thing with, with, with Watergate, just juxtapose that against there. In that case, you had the opposition party really going after him. You had, uh, I remember as, as a young guy, I was inspired. I thought, man, I want to become a journalist like Dan Rather. I really didn't know Dan Rather's history, that he you know, became famous for lying you know, about the Kennedy assassination. But here, you know, he was grilling Nixon at press conferences, and you haven't seen, you didn't see that before, and you haven't seen it since. Bingo. So uh, there had to be a reason why. I mean, it was nonstop coverage, Woodward and Bernstein and Deep Throat and all this stuff that was fascinating to me. I said, wow, this is great. I want to be an investigative journalist. But you, you can't get these same guys. They weren't interested in uh, the, the Kennedy assassination. They weren't interested in later in Oklahoma City or Waco or, uh, or uh, 9-11 or any of that. So, and you know, you mentioned any kind of scandals around any presidents, and they just call you a conspiracy theorist. So, I look at it: why did our institutions act the way they did in Watergate? And it was so different than any other time. So, I have to conclude that Nixon, for what I mean, we really could have impeached every president since Kennedy on greater grounds than Nixon was impeached for, and uh, or at least no, no worse, anyhow. But to, to the idea that. Uh, that that was a reason for him to be uh, removed from office was was absolutely ridiculous. We've had the kind of corrupt administrations we've had before, and since then. So yeah, I, I've changed my opinion. I you know I don't like Nixon, but I have to conclude that that, that he was uh, effectively removed from office without being killed. But he he was definitely removed by some forces. Ted Kennedy wanted to make an heroic run towards the presidency. Yet Chappaquiddick came up. Is that yet another scandal that? probably should have just been blown over and do you think that was manufactured somehow to take him down well i think i think that was his political assassination and uh i i write about this a little bit in the book it, it happened the exact same time man was uh, supposedly first landing on the moon so that was uh you know obviously the big story all over the world so it didn't get as much press uh, initially as it might have but if you analyze the story there you, you uh, ted kennedy was seen the next morning Afterwards, uh, calm, relaxed, joking with some friends on a yacht, and then his cousin Joe Gargan and another guy came up to him and whispered something to him, and he turned white as a sheet and ran off. Yeah. So I mean, I, I I believe he I don't believe for a second he was in the car, whether he was knocked out or drugged or something, but I believe that I don't believe he was. I, I didn't. Well, wasn't Teddy Kennedy's greatest fan? Later, he had kind of a typical liberal career. Uh, I don't think he was a profile in courage all that often. I think he was kind of a, wasn't up to where his brothers were. I mean, John and Robert had such high standards, and I think he knew that. And he had obviously personal failings with the drink and womanizing and so forth. But I believe he would have been president unquestionably. He would have been the nominee in 1972. He would have definitely been the nominee in 76 and been elected, certainly, over Jimmy Carter. But Chappaquiddick held him back. And you'll notice as soon as he decided to very strangely run in 1980, which was kind of past the moment. I don't really know why he chose to at that point. And in a challenge a sitting incumbent like Jimmy Carter, then suddenly the media started talking about Chappaquiddick constantly. And so, and you know, he just, he never, he had been leading in the polls up to that until Roger Mudd ambushed him on a, a CBS interview and they kindly left all the errs and uhs in there. So he sounded like a blithering idiot. But 
I don't believe he, he purposefully would murder someone. I believe all the evidence shows he was a decent guy. And I don't believe his story for a second. I believe, you know, I don't believe he dove repeatedly and the big guy with a bad back and probably drunk. I don't believe he got out of the car when the young athletic girl who didn't drink didn't, couldn't. And, you know, I believe he swam against the current across that. I don't believe he swam that long distance. So I think his story is impossible, but I think that's what he was left to tell. And he was told to tell that. And that, that was his political assassination. He would have been president if not for Chappaquiddick. I don't think there's a doubt in the world. That's a pretty good segue into the Carter administration, but first let me tell folks who we're speaking with. Folks, Don Jeffries is here tonight. He's got a great new book out I'd urge you all to get. It's called Hidden History, an Expose of Modern Crimes, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups in American Politics. And what, is it do what it does essentially is takes you from one American crisis to another, one administration to another, and it shows you precedent. It shows you templates that have been pl in place over and over and over again. Sometimes they get tweaked a little bit to try and hide them, but they're essentially there. This is essential if you want to understand how we got from where we were to the mess we're in today. I'm going to go back to Don now. We're going to talk about the Carter administration. Once again, when I think of Jimmy Carter, I think of this honest broker coming into the presidency. Somewhat like a JFK, if you will, and all of a sudden this crisis arises over in Iran and um, he's got all these hostages and we know who was the head of the CIA station in Iran at the time, which was none other than Dick Helms. Now, as soon as I hear that name, I think of Beezlebub. <laughs> Call me old-fashioned, but that's, right. you know. So yeah. Dick Helms, folks, was uh, in charge of the CIA. Rumor has it that he was trying to uh, make a buck off the drugs that were flowing through Iran in those days. And all of a sudden, uh, the Iranian revolution comes along, Iran rises up, some students take, everybody knows, hostages from the American embassy in Iran, and all of a sudden, Jimmy Carter's in tr deep, deep trouble. Is this yet just another one of those assassinations, as you call it, political assassinations? Well, I think, I think certainly the October surprise thing, I, I, I lay that out in my book. I, I don't think there's any doubt that something like that happened. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, uh, I cast a... Uh, Caveat here, I cast my first presidential vote for him and the only winning one in my life thus far. So I haven't had a great, he's the only winner I voted for. So uh, uh, Trump or whoever beware at this point because you know, I don't have a good track record. So, uh, but yeah, in, in retrospect, he looks much better now, especially with what had come before him and what has come since then. Uh, he did some good things. He was trying to, do, you know, he, I think he was basically a, a good and decent guy. I, I, I tended to view him at that time as I viewed all politics uh, through the prism of the Kennedy assassination, because that was my issue, my sole issue. And I was really disappointed because, you know, in 76 was the height of uh, really criticism of the Warren Report. It was right at the time the House assassination, House Select Committee on Assassinations was being formed, where I, you know, first started uh, lobbying with Mark Lane's uh, group, Citizens Committee. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, that, I was really, you know, into that. And I knew that Jimmy Carter's sister, Ruth Carter Stapleton, was a big JFK assassination critic. She used to hang around with Larry Flint. It's weird. Like you had Flint and then you had Ruth Carter Stapleton, who was an evangelist. So they were an odd pair. But uh, And, of course, she ended up dying of cancer. And uh, it was very bizarre because I thought, you know, Carter has to know all this stuff. But he, as far as I know, I never heard any reference to the Kennedy assassination in his speeches. 
Uh, he really didn't talk too much about the CIA either, which that was during the time of the church, church committee hearings as well. We were first starting to find out about it. So I wasn't really pleased with him, you know, at the time. But again, in retrospect, he looks pretty good, you know. So compared with what happened afterwards, I have to kind of say that uh, he did less harm, certainly, than most of the others. And I, I do feel, like I said, he was trying to talk about it. You know, if you look back at some of his speeches now, it's really it's sad because he was saying the kind of things that they're really not even about alternative energy at that point. Yeah. And you're talking about it's 40 years ago now. Yeah. And we really haven't progressed at all in that. We're still doing the same stuff. And so it's it's really sad to look at uh, what uh, what might have been there. But uh, I, I don't think there's, I lay it out in the book with the October surprise, but I think that there's no question that he was uh, left, at, hung out to dry and they, they delayed that so, you know, Reagan could benefit from it. You know, it often makes me wonder as well, who's actually pulling the strings who's above the president, because we know that the president doesn't have top secret clearance for some of the things that are going on. And I kind of ask myself, you mean the elected representative of the people, the number one guy or the number one person, doesn't have top secret clearance? Well, who's above that? Yeah. That's what I like to know. Yeah. Is, is that the cabal, as um, St. John Hunt calls it? Is there a cabal out there that... Uh, a mix of somehow bankers, a mix of uh, oil people, all these rich folks. Well, yeah, there, there's the people. Uh, I, I talk about a lot of the, about this in my novel, The Unreals, which is uh, science fiction, but it talks a lot about this kind of stuff. Who really runs things, you know? And they've been called the Illuminati. Lots of people will blame the Jews. They'll blame the Freemasons. They'll blame the Vatican. Uh, I don't. Again, I don't. I think all those are groups, you know, obviously, and and. But uh, Freemasons especially are kind of strange. You talk about who runs, I have an anecdote in Hidden History too, where uh, I believe it was President Chester Arthur, who uh, this guy told an anecdote when he was with Albert Pike, who was a KKK leader, still has a statue in Washington, D.C., and nobody complains about it because he was a 33rd degree Mason, one of the most powerful Masons in the world. And this guy told an anecdote about how he was meeting with uh, with, I think it was Chester Arthur, I may have the president wrong, but it was the president of the United States and Bishop Pike and that the president kept deferring to Pike. He was in charge of him because he looked up to him. He was the highest ranking Mason, and he knew where he stood, at least in that point. Now, I don't think it's all a Mason thing, but I think there's someone above these guys unquestionably. I mean, people have called them the Illuminati, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, but they're, they're, they're somebody. It's certainly the bankers, you know, I mean, the, the Rothschilds all over the world, and the Rockefellers are in their own with the, with their foundations and so forth. Uh, there are people uh, definitely, and I, I think again they have the same interest. Uh, Gore Vidal had a great quote where he's talking about you know you these people all they all believe the same things. So you don't you don't really even need to have like a meeting you know and say because they all they all want the same stuff you know. Again, it's kind of in the wind, isn't it? Yeah, it's in the wind, and I so I think there's and I think these guys know. I think. I don't know that Kennedy knew how much in danger he was today. He was fatalistic. Mm. JFK was he? You know, he, he loved. You know, I have a rendezvous with death. Alan Seeger's poem and so forth. He was a fatalistic guy, and he had been through so much himself with health issues and the war and so forth. So I think he maybe didn't think he would live a long life. But at the same time, I think he was courageous, and he. I think being rich maybe it insulated him. He thought, you know, I'm a rich guy. I'm a president. You know, the, these guys can't get me. So, I, you know, I, I don't think there have been, I think the presidents since then mm. certainly have come maybe from different backgrounds as him. And uh, 
I think I think certainly Reagan. You know, when Reagan was shot early on in his administration, I, I, I think he got a message probably. <laughs> I, I, I would think because you know he really never followed through on any of his promises at all, and uh, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but uh, it certainly was a you know it, it was a wake up call. I would think. Do you think he was thrown into Iran Contra once it was underway? Do you think he had any knowledge of it, or do you think he was purposely stayed under the radar? You know, I, th- I kind of compare Reagan to George W. Bush in personality. I think both of them were kind of, you know, pleasant goofballs. So I, I don't think really either one of them was capable of really engineering something on their own. And I, you know, in, in my view, I mean, Reagan was just kind of a. I really think he actually believed he, he was, you know, he, although he never cut government. And uh, as I point out in the book, I mean, you want to talk about cutting back on government. The Grace Commission in the 1980s showed back then they demonstrated how you could cut the, the government by one third by eliminating nothing but waste. Reagan ignored the commission. He never did anything about it. He didn't. He didn't eliminate the Department of Education, which had just been created. He didn't eliminate the Department of Energy. So uh, again, I don't I don't really argue for bigger or, or lesser government. At all I'm just saying these guys they don't follow through on their campaign promises. And I I'm one of these guys. I believe that an honest libertarian type of government could work, and I believe an honest uh, socialist government could probably work. So, it, it, but it's it's how it's being run. My hero is Huey Long. My you know my political hero. I'm a populist, but in Reagan's case. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know how involved he was in, you know, in Iran Contra or anything. I, I would suspect George H. W. Bush was probably more hands, much as Dick Cheney was probably much more hands-on in what was going on in the George W. Bush administration. Do you think money has a, a larger part to play in American politics than perhaps I know for sure in Canada, for example, we have ceilings on the amount of money corporations can donate to a single candidate, uh, also unions and individuals as well. It's not a perfect system. Don't get me wrong, um, but it 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 what it does is it creates more of a level playing field. So it's not just the uber rich all the time. So you don't keep seeing the same faces all the time passing through government. Is that part of the problem? Is it is it money and perhaps you know the funding that comes in from these uber rich people that the Illuminati, so to speak, and all these other people that you just mentioned? Well, I, th- I think money, obviously, is, is, is everything in America. In fact, my next book, uh, you know, I hate to plug it, but it's due out, it's going to be published in spring of 2017, is going to be called Survival of the Richest. And it's going to focus on that, uh, not just the 1%, but uh, the, how our wealth is consolidated, and there's been a massive transfer of wealth upwards yes. in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And when you, you can't have an economy where almost half the people, 40% or so, have nothing, have less than nothing. 1% of the wealth. Yep. You can't, it's impossible to have that, to have a viable economy. So money, obviously, and I, I have some quotes in the book about how, you know, only people with power, only people with money have any influence in Congress or elected representatives. They're not going to listen to anybody that doesn't have money. So even, even campaign, contra- beyond campaign contributions, once they get into office, if, you know, 2,000 irate, out-of-work people or something show up, they're, they're, collectively you're going to have no impact at all. But you get one call from a huge, you know, a, a Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or something that has an interest in it. Well, guess which way you're, it doesn't matter left or right, which way these guys are going to go. So, yeah, money definitely poisons the system, but I think it's much bigger than just how the campaigns are financed. I, I don't know if they were publicly financed, how much of a difference that would make, because until the wealth 
is distributed differently until you know more people have a voice because right now very few people have a voice do you feel your vote counts done well I, I, well you, my book has about vote scam in there we talk about you know that we, there's been massive voting fraud since the 1980s that we know of mm. You go farther back than that, the landslide Lyndon Johnson, you know, when he won after three or four recounts and a couple of his deaths in his body count, you know, back in the, when he was uh, running for the Senate. You know, these things, uh, you know, when they talk about, you know, vote early and often, it's not just a joke, you know, and, and we saw it in Ron Paul's campaign, especially in 2012, massive voting fraud and the point where he actually finally said a little something about it. But during this campaign, I don't know how people watching both of these parties. Bernie Sanders was absolutely screwed out of the nomination. I mean, there's no question about it. He was drawing 30,000 people at his rallies and Hillary Clinton couldn't fill a room. It was how obvious. Was, how was he, because we were all very up on, I'll tell you, Canada yeah. was pulling for Bernie big time. Not because yeah. he's a socialist, but because he was a humanist. Yeah. Uh, how did he get screwed out? Well, I mean, what they would do is they, they the Dem and that's why Trump picked the Republican party. He's, he's really kind of an, he's not really a party guy. But he knew that the Democrats, once they, I believe after McGovern was nominated in 72, McGovern was considered too far out there. He got slaughtered. He won one state. The Democrats said, nobody that far out is going to happen again. So they started to create this concept of superdelegates. And this is what has gotten Hillary Clinton the nomination. She, Bernie Sanders would win a primary by 13%, and Hillary Clinton would get more delegates. And it was because the superdelegates would kick in, so they kept saying, and then the media, at one point, Bernie Sanders won, I think, eight primaries in a row. Now, that's unprecedented, yes. for, and the media continued to say Hillary Clinton, her uh, nomination was inevitable. Meanwhile, Ted Cruz would win one and lose 10, and every time he won one, well, when is Donald Trump going to drop out? And it was the same thing there, but they couldn't do it because they didn't have superdelegates, but what they would do, they just had people like what, what happened, and you'll see it during the Republican National Convention, Colorado is rumored to be uh, leading a walkout of the Cruz delegates, and Colorado is the state where they just canceled the vote. They didn't let the people vote, and they just gave all the delegates to Ted Cruz. So everybody saw how the sausage was being made here in both parties, and it isn't very pretty, and you mentioned young people, especially young people rallied around Sanders especially, and they are very disillusioned. And then when they see Bernie Sanders, and it, it didn't surprise me at all. Bernie Sanders has been in Congress for a very long time. I like a lot of his rhetoric, but and he votes pretty decently most of the time. But I knew he'd been around a long time. I knew he, you know, he supported the Iraq War and so forth. So I knew back uh, in when Bill Clinton was uh, bombing uh, Kosovo during Ramadan and so forth. Uh, he had protesters that he had ejected from his office. So I know he's not exactly, we don't have any peace candidates really since the Kennedys that, are, that have any chance to win. So I, I think it's very disillusioning to people. And does, does your vote count? Well, if our vote had counted, I think you would see, and you'd see a real interesting campaign if it was Sanders versus uh, Trump. Trump. Because those were the, the obvious people who the, peop the, the voters wanted in their respective parties. And Getting Hillary Clinton in there, it's just, it's a slap in the face to Bernie Sanders, and it's a slap in the face to all his supporters. And I, I don't think, unfortunately, our country is almost alone in the world, where we just don't allow any other parties. I mean, a, a good candidate in uh, Jill Stein of the Green Party, but she just doesn't have a chance. And, and everybody knows, and, and I, I've voted third party so many times. You know, I voted for Cynthia McKinney, I voted for Ralph Nader twice, Ross Perot twice, Pat Buchanan. 
I'm tired of doing that because it's just there's no point. If I vote for Jill Stein, she's going to get less than one percent. So I'm probably holding my nose and voting for Trump. I, I you know I, I don't know, but Roger Stone has assured me that you know Trump is the real deal. And if Trump really follows through what he says on trade, especially, that's a huge huge thing. And because uh, we, I don't know about you guys, but we have been devastated. Same deal. Same deal. Yeah, I mean it's it's. It's awful, and our industry has been completely gutted. And again, yeah, you already have a country that has no wealth at the bottom. You have to have some hope for the people, and there's nowhere here where there are decent jobs anymore. Yeah, I had uh, Paul Hellyer on, who was the uh, Canadian Defense Minister under Pierre Trudeau in the 60s, and he goes back a ways just to uh, post-war. He was a very famous Minister of Parliament here in Canada. He actually ran for the leadership. He could have been Prime Minister, and we were talking about the banks a few weeks ago and and how much control they have right over the world the global aspects of the world and that it's just a license to make money because they lend you money based on about two percent of what they're lending you but you you have to pay a hundred percent back plus interest there's no way to get ahead and the fact that we've shipped all these amazing manufacturing jobs offshore well why don't we just cut the middle class out completely and say there's no more middle class so the rich get richer and the poor, well, the poor are always going to be the poor, but my God, the poor are just getting bigger in numbers because the middle, middle class has no more upward mobility. They only have downward mobility now. The book is called Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics, www.nightfrightshow. Just click on tonight's guest book cover, and our guest tonight is Donald Jeffries, and that'll take you right to a place where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Once again, Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics by Donald Jeffries, www.nightfrightshow.com. Okay, we, lent, uh, we, we um, left off tantalizingly uh, just before George, uh, I was going to say George W., George H. Bush. Of course, you know, we look at that and we say, okay, he went, into, he went to war right away and he's the ex-CIA director. Was he more or less put in place by this invisible wind, we'll call it, for lack of saying cabal? Was he put in that situation specifically to have that war? Well, he was a trusted figure at the establishment. He'd been the director of the CIA. He, uh, he was in all the right organizations, the Council of Foreign Relations. His father and grandfather had been in uh, the Senate. So the Bush family goes, I believe, like so many of these families that I've traced back, go back to the Mayflower. So they're, they're, they're elite families, and they've been, they're blue bloods, if you will. They're kind of our royalty. Yeah. I think they thought, unlike a Kennedy, who was an Irish guy, and uh, you know, his dad made his wealth on his own, and they, were, they, were cons they weren't old wealth. So everybody kind of looked down on them, plus the fact they're Irish. The Bushes, nobody's going to look down on them. I think they had no fears at all. And uh, obviously Bush didn't let them down. And uh, neither neither did his son. And uh, neither did the Clintons. You know, Bill Clinton and, you know, maybe Hillary here in the future or Obama. I mean, none of these, ever since really, uh, said ever since Nixon or Carter, Carter, really they've had nothing to worry about in the White House. Okay. They have been an absolute, uh, you know, uh, tool of the powers that be in there. Was Bill Clinton a surprise to come to power? Because everybody, you know, a war president that's successful, George H. Bush, everybody was expecting him to get a, a second term, yet he didn't. Uh, was Bill Clinton a surprise? 
Well, uh, you know, the way these things, these these parties tend to, you know, uh, alternate every eight years or so. They go from one to the other, and they criticize the other's mistakes. And, you know, it's the, it's the same story. It's the song and dance where they're really what Huey Long called high pop alone and low pop a high and Tweedledum and Tweedledee, where, uh, you know, they're, they're really the same face. They agree on all the most important issues. Um, you know, they're all war all the time. They always agree. That's why there's no such thing in the Democratic Party, even the Bernie Sanders is not really an anti-war candidate. He's not coming in saying, this is ridiculous, we have to disengage from all this. He believes in the war on terror, the endless war on a face that can't be identified, an enemy that can't be identified, or that can't be won. If you can't even define the enemy, how can you win it? And it's a perfect tool for them, because, and they can blame everything that happens on, see, it's the terrorists. And the terrorists can look like anybody, and nobody oppo- nobody's opposing that. I mean, look what happened. We had the Patriot Act that came in, and tore up so many of our few remaining civil liberties. Mm. You know, the Homeland Security Department, who Republicans claim they're anti-big government. You have this huge bureaucracy now that's just entrenched. No one's talking about eliminating it. And so this is the problem that you have. Both parties believe in this, I call it a, a bureaucracy. We have basically a socialist nanny state that provides little or no services. That's what we have. We have a, an all-encompassing state security cameras everywhere, you know, p- policing uh, hate speech and free speech zones and so forth, violating the Constitution with impunity, and yet we get, you know, they want to cut back on welfare and food stamps mm. and things like that. They don't want to give the citizens, any, and certainly our health care system is, you know, it was hard to believe they could come up with something that made our system worse, but Obamacare managed to do it, because now you have to buy it at the price of penalty. I mean, you you have to, you pay a penalty, and the penalties go up every year. I mean, I've never, you know, what kind of a free marketplace mandates that people buy a product? A and product. and mm-hmm. Obama refused to rule out jail sentences also for people that, that didn't do it. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. You just educated me on that. Well, yes. this is something that was surprising when I when I read that um, the intro to the show was the fact that you guys pay the most taxes for health care in the world, and you have a system that is primarily funded by private enterprise. What is shocking to me is where are those tax dollars really going to? Right. Well, what happens, you know, when they talk, when the debate on Obamacare happened, they should have had the CEOs of the pharmaceutical companies, the insurance companies and hospitals. These are the people that are profiting out the system. They, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a big fan of Michael Moore and a lot of things I think he's ridiculous, but Sicko, the movie had, it had some good moments. And, and one of the things he had, he, he interviewed a doctor in Great Britain yes. and he showed how a, 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 a doctor in that system lives. And he lived a decent life, but not the kind of lives our doctors lead. And certainly not the kind uh, that someone who's in charge of a pharmaceutical company. I mean, you know, I mean, you can get a pill in Cuba for five cents and it costs a couple hundred bucks here something's wrong. I mean, it's, it's profiting off of people's misery, but I think what we're going to come to, Brent, is, and they've already alluded to it, the Rush Limbaugh's and people like that have alluded to it, is it's going to be, America's going to eventually tell its citizens that health care is a privilege and not a right. And they've already alluded to it, that, you know, this is something, if you can't afford it, you know, just die. You know, I mean, that's basically, and that's unfortunately, but I think that it's going to come to that because uh, they've already, again, the right especially makes allusions to that all the time. You know, we can't Unless you're in a league of liberty, of course, then then you get it free because the system depends on that. The bottom of our our falling economy is propped up by these illegal immigrants who are working for basically nothing, 
And, and that's what they need. They need that cheap labor, and they, we see it in the visa workers, too. And Trump is, has actually been the only ones that he not only talked about immigration, but he called out the visa workers when the Disney fired all their visa, their uh, longtime IT workers and made them hire their replacements from India. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody realized our government, this is the kind of talk about wasting money, they pay a bonus to companies that hire a visa worker, usually from India, mm-hmm. over an American citizen. Now that's that you can't that kind of government. We we had started with Thomas Jefferson's quote. Just imagine what someone like a Thomas Jefferson, or who sounds like a real conspiracy theorist, with what he wrote in the Declaration of Independence. What would he think of that situation? You're paying this government is paying a bonus when you have 94 to 100 million Americans out of work. Yep. One insane. in five households have no one working in them in America. One in five households. It's not sustainable. No, it's not it's sustainable. Not. The MBA is just look at the bottom line. And having written an MBA, I know that you're taught that if you save $20 by firing 200 people, you oust the 200 people, never mind about the human factor or the social economic factor, bye-bye. Right. So it justifies your own job as the MBA. And also, you make 20 more bucks for the company. And we can't sustain this. This is ridiculous. Well, Which leads me to the George W. Bush administration and 9-11. Once again, we see the same type of machinations coming to take place. And another face from the Bush family. So can we talk a little bit about the Bush administration? Well, I, I, again, it was it, things really started to spiral downhill as far as civil liberties are concerned after 9-11. And uh, those of us who were aware, I mean, I, I call it being awake or asleep. And unfortunately, most Americans like Probably most Canadians are still asleep, but the ones that are awake, we're getting more awake every minute. You know, we're we're probably never going to be able to sleep again. We're so awake. But 9/11 changed things so much because it it because of this new um, enemy again that can't be defined. And 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 George W. Bush uh, pulled a line that goes back as far as Abraham Lincoln. You're not with us. You're with the terrorists. You're not mm-hmm. with us. You're with the Confederates. You're not with us. You're with the Nazis. You're not with us. You're with the terrorists. So it's, it's been used effectively over the uh, years and even centuries by leaders who want to try to quell completely dissent. And dissent started, you started seeing in the George W. Bush years, that's when you started seeing the free speech zones and so forth. And the Patriot Act really uh, cracked down on things. And thank goodness that the Internet hadn't been there. I don't know how bad it would have been. But um, the fact that 9-11, and that's another thing about Donald Trump. Donald Trump has, has hinted at 9-11 truth which is a huge thing for any presidential candidate to do. And uh, I certainly know Roger Stone, his advisor, is a big 9-11 truther. So that's one of the things I hold out hope for. If he got in office, maybe he'd, you know, he'd look into that. But you can imagine the impact. There's so much vested, much as the Kennedy assassination for a long time was probably the crown jewel of the elites. Uh, you know, I call it the mother of all conspiracies. 9-11, especially now for people who were young at that time, like my kids were, as opposed to the JFK assassination, mm-hmm. that's their JFK assassination, and it was such a huge event. It changed the way, unlike the JFK assassination, we actually had this new huge Homeland Security and Patriot Act and so forth. It has changed the way uh, America operates so much, and because of the terrorist, one thing I point out in the book, in 1976, after the church committee hearings, President Ford, of all people, a Warren Commission member, was forced to issue an executive order condemning assassination as a political weapon after the uh, exposés about the CIA's attempts on Castro. 
Uh, Castro was this communist leader we hated, mm -hmm. and we recognized it was beyond the pale to assassinate him. Flash forward less than 40 years later, a liberal president, Barack Obama, brags about killing not only um, Saddam Hussein, not only Osama bin Laden, but Anwar al-Awlabi, an American citizen who was never charged with a crime, was killed by a drone, and then the next month his 16-year-old son was accidentally killed by a drone. A drone strike. Hillary Clinton says, we came, we saw he died. Obama jokes, we're good, I'm good at killing people. This is These are liberals. Mm. So again, just in that little bit of time frame, we've gone to, that's why it was laughable. I tried to tell some of my friends who are interested, you know, what do you care about the church committee hearings at this point? And we were aghast that they were trying to kill Castro then. Now they're bragging. They're telling you they're good at killing. So then, and they're not, not Castro. We're talking about really pretty much anybody. So that's how much things have changed. And I think a lot of it really picked up at warp speed because after 9-11, and it was blamed on these crazy, you talk about a conspiracy theory, 19 crazed uh, Arab hijackers, apparently some of them are still alive somehow, you know, but, you know with, armed with box cutters and plastic knives, to believe that fairy tale. And again, if you just look at the evidence, there's just so much there. I mean, you know, we talk about the, I have it all in my book, you know, where the steel can't, it can only melt at a certain temperature, and they tell you it never reached that, but somehow they collapsed. All you need to know is before September 11th, 2001, no high-rise building, steel frame building had ever collapsed from fire. Three did that day, including uh, Building 7, which was never hit by anything. Since that time, no more buildings have collapsed from fire. So was that just a magical day or was this, you know, something or did they not collapse from fire? Let's jump ahead. I'm just looking at the time. I wanted to get to this much earlier, but we'll give it a couple of minutes anyways. Benghazi and Hillary Clinton. How does that reflect on Hillary's judgment? Well, you know, Hillary Clinton is, uh, I call her the queen of corruption. And I think, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, she is, has a career, this, she has a track record, unlike a Donald Trump or some of these other people, where we can see uh, Roger Stone's book, The Clinton's War Against Women, talks about people like Kathleen Willey and Paula Jones and what they went through. It, it's, it's laughable that someone who calls herself a feminist and will probably get 75% of the female vote is one of the biggest enablers of a serial womanizer and perhaps rapist of all time. This is this is a woman that every her every action in, in public and in private uh, completely contradicts her image of, as a feminist. She is a war hawk extraordinaire. She was a Goldwater Republican. She's never met a war she didn't like. She was the one who really urged. Uh, I mean, I don't think Bill Clinton was too reluctant. He he loved war too, but to bomb Kosovo and she wanted him. You know, I think she brags about it, saying I did. So this is not. This is somebody who helped. Uh, you know, and I, I. I don't know how much she was behind the scenes. But I think she was at least co-president with Bill Clinton. She clearly has a huge impact on him and influence on him. They rewrote the welfare reform so forth so that since that time, again, this great liberal president, since that time, fewer people get fewer benefits for a shorter period of time mm -hmm. than ever before under the so-called welfare, under the three strikes you're out, the mandatory sentence and laws. This is what you quoted earlier from my book about the record number of people in prisons. Well, a lot of that stemmed from the Clinton years that Hillary Clinton supported. She started throwing people in that, you know, had three felonies, and it could be, you know, two times uh, robbing a vending machine mm. or a couple candy bars. That's considered a felony. So you're at three strikes, you're out. You're in there for life or a mandatory sentence. And certainly for someone who's going to get probably the vast majority of the black vote, they ought to look at all the black people that are in prison for crack cocaine uh, when the exact same thing with white uh, people who, you know, snort cocaine, 
the sentences are nowhere near that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous. And it all stems from the kind of reforms that were passed during the Clinton 90s. So Hillary Clinton, Benghazi is the latest thing. It doesn't surprise me at all. Her uncaring attitude about mm -hmm. the people who died. She doesn't show any sensitivity to the family members at all. Uh, she just, her things like she just kind of shrugs and jokes uh, inappropriately, just the same way it does with the email. I've talked to lots of government workers who, if they'd done what she did, would have been gone from the government and prosecuted. Nothing happens to her. She's a Teflon person. I, I said about Bill Clinton when he was president that he could have been videotaped with a bloody knife over a corpse on the White House lawn, and 40% of the people would still vote for him. And I think that holds definitely true with Hillary Clinton. She's going to get America is divided with this left and right paradigm. Forty percent buy into the liberal Democratic stuff. Forty percent buy into the conservative Republican Damn, stuff. There's the music. Damn. <laughs> Don, thanks so much for this book and coming on the show. Don't be a stranger. You've got to come back. You, Anytime. You've got a home here, happy my friend. Very happy right. to have you on. Nice, intelligent fellow. And uh, bravo. Nice book, too. Great book. www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a place. you got to get this book. It's going to inform you a lot in what's been taking place now and then. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. We'll see you later. Thanks for joining Person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.